Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. This afternoon, we have with us guest Professor Ajay Parasram. Ajay is an assistant professor in international development studies and in history at Dalhousie University. Now, he describes himself as a multi-generational, transnational byproduct of the British Empire. He says he's been trying to figure out what that means for the past 30 years or more. Uh, he received his PhD at Carleton in political science, and his dissertation was called Becoming the State, the Territorializing of Ceylon. 1815 to 1847. Ceylon today is referred to as Sri Lanka, of course. Now, currently, he's working on a book manuscript with Manchester University Press and other works related to post-colonial theory and practice. And if you join us here at International Development Studies Department at Dalhousie University, uh, you may have the opportunity to have a class with Professor Parasram. He and I were both uh, module instructors of the Global Development Primer, GDP, back in September of 2018. So, Professor Parasram, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, you have brought a strong influence of, I guess we could call it, post-colonial and decolonial thinking to the department. Uh, this is coming out of a broader conversation of universities around the world that are looking at engaging in post-colonial thinking, decolonial teaching practices. Uh, many Canadian universities are, are seeing this happen. Mm-hmm. Universities in New Zealand mm-hmm. have been going through this since the 1990s. Post-colonial and decolonial, mm-hmm. what is it? That's a really uh, great starting point, actually. Uh, so I think, like, obviously, post-colonialism as a, as a body of knowledge starts first. Uh, and, and officially, it takes form, you know, in the work of people like Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, these people in the kind of 70s into the 80s. Uh, Ranajit Gua in the historical tradition, uh, and, and, and what the post-colonial intervention was, it sort of grew out of a general critical mood in uh, social science interdisciplinary scholarship, uh, and it was very textual, it was very uh, literary, in fact. It wanted to look at the sort of uh, discursive representation of knowledge, uh, and, and, and that's sort of where the kind of primary emphasis of post-colonialism rests. And a lot of my work uh, is about explaining the kind of uh, how we got from post-colonialism to what we might instead call decoloniality. And there's still anti-colonialism, and there are lots of nuances, but the uh, the way I like to make sense of the core differences between the two is that we can think of post-colonialism as a kind of epistemic maneuver. So what I mean by epistemic maneuver is that it's not about fundamentally changing the way we see the world. It's about trying to understand the kind of colonial aspect of that single world. But when we get into decolonial theory or decolonial thinking, uh, and in that we can also look at indigenous resurgence literature, there's, it's actually a much bigger intellectual and conceptual project. So I would call if post-colonialism is about an epistemic maneuver, then the decolonial options are really ontological at their core. So this is something where if we are, if we, you, you said discursive knowledge, like trying to un, unpack right. that. So if I'm getting this right, the idea is that we want to look at colonial practices in the past. 
mm-hmm. to understand not just that they happened, but but who was making the decisions to 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 see these processes out the the mapping the carving up of Africa for example, right. uh, to understand what the power relations were mm-hmm. in that process, mm-hmm. and then from there, through a decolonial process, start to move towards creating change. Is that? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a very good way of kind of explaining how the two might work. They don't necessarily share; they're not necessarily part of the same intellectual movements. Mm-hmm. Although uh, I think it's fair to say that that they're related, mm-hmm. but uh, it's sort of the objective is, is a little bit different. So right. I I oftentimes think of it as, uh, and I've written about this uh, in a piece in the um, Rutledge Handbook of Ethics and in International Relations. That one of the core differences here is that. Postcolonialism was seeking inclusion into the discursive canon. So, and when we say discursive canons, what we mean the bodies of literature that scholars have produced. Right. Whereas the decolonial option is less directly interested in that. They're more interested in delinking from the hegemony of that discursive discourse. So, for them, it's more about what are people actually doing uh, to bring about decolonial. Uh, options. Right. So the second one is more action-based. A little bit, yeah. So, so let's just stick with the idea of <clears throat> post-colonialism for a minute. If we're, if we're, people talk about having a post-colonial view or a post-colonial mm-hmm. lens on a subject, mm-hmm. you studied Sri Lanka, or Ceylon mm-hmm. as it was called. Now this was one of the, the, the targets of mm-hmm. the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the island grows only uh, a few specific or how should I say, there's certain commodities that can only grow in Sri Lanka. Is this correct? Mm-hmm. And and from there, the British Empire had a very specific interest, a project in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Uh, through a post-colonial lens, how would you tell us what the experience of Sri Lanka was like in the 19th century? I think we would want to start, see, the, the it, what's fascinating about Sri Lanka and, and lots of other places actually is that we can't start the colonial story in the 19th century, but the 19th century is, a, is an important critical juncture, especially for all of us who speak English as our primary language, because colonialism as a modern encounter begins in the 1500s with the Portuguese uh, in, in Ceylon. So by the time the British arrive, we already have hundreds of years of colonial interaction in different parts of, of the island. And, that's how, and, and it was actually so the, the major cash crops that the British were interested in was actually something that uh, had started in earnest under the Dutch, the late Dutch period in the late 18th century into the early 19th century. But it was there that the kind of British really kind of innovated and, and tried to uh, really transformed Ceylon into what it's known the most for internationally by way of commodities, which is, of course, tea and coffee. Right. Ceylon tea uh, and Ceylon coffee. It was coffee first. And then uh, in the late 19th century, there was just a devastating coffee outbreak relating to monocrop culture and wiped out almost the whole international supply of coffee. Imagine uh, we wouldn't be sitting here in class or listening to this podcast with a steaming cup of coffee. There'd be nothing. This was actually, uh, if, I'm, if I remember this correct, what year was that? That was in the... The 1870s, if I'm It was the 1870s, mistaken. and this is when... Rust they, disease. Yeah, and they started to, I know in, uh, in the American West, the expansion, they started to replace coffee with chicory as a yeah and you can still find that uh, horrid combination of coffee and chicory in the southern states and parts of uh, the western u.s so people do what they got to do to stay alert right that so okay so here we go and now with 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 great britain or the, the british mm. empire 
when they had their eyes on Ceylon, Sri Lanka, right. I mean, were they looking at direct rule or was it indirect rule? Did they, did they think about the, they were going to stick around here or did they just want to take the, the resources and get out? So in the beginning, that's a really good question because it's actually a different story from what happened in, say, India. You know, like in India uh, in the 18th century and before, the British, you know, and the other Europeans, they weren't interested in rule. It, it was not a settler colonial situation the way that we have settler colonialism in Canada. Uh, the, the British wanted the goods and they wanted to go. It was a very, what we would call mercantilist rationality. Right. You know, they right. wanted the goods. They wanted to increase their national coffers. But in Sri Lanka, or in Ceylon, what's fascinating is that a full generation or two before what happened in India, these things were starting to unfold in Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka becomes, I'm going to say Sri Lanka and Ceylon uh, interchangeably, just uh, as, you, as you listen. But so in 19th century Sri Lanka, in, in 1802, it becomes a crown colony. And that is over 50 years sooner than that happened in India. That didn't happen until 1857 in India. So in a way, what you see in looking at the British experience in Sri Lanka is the birth of the Raj 50 years before the birth of the Raj. Right. So which is this what's is really exciting about this. So is this almost a testing ground for governance for India, or is I mean, it a it coincidence? What, so the thing is, uh, we oftentimes give too much credibility to the empire. <laughs> they didn't have any idea what they were doing. Right. And in fact, when you look at the nitty-gritty details of it, the colonial office in London kept writing to the governor saying, for the love of God, do not try to take over this territory. And the reason why is because the Dutch tried for a long time and the Portuguese before them. The British tried and failed in uh, 1803 and 1805. They tried to take over the whole of the island. And it's because there was this, this, this anti-colonial presence in the center of the island that controlled actually more of the island than, than the British did. The British controlled the maritime regions. But the interior was ruled by this place that had a really strong anti-road policy, anti-infrastructure. Um, they didn't operate based on cash, so the cash system wasn't there. They weren't as integrated into global capitalism the way we might have expected at this time. So they had weathered the storm for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And, and the British were basically tired of losing. It was one of these situations where you know, they'd send their troops up and then one or two of them might, might struggle their way down the mountain. And... Uh, the, the troops are really good, even though they're fighting with, you know, what we might call uh, objectively primitive weapons, you know, like we're talking bows and arrows and spears against muskets. Uh, but the, the, the sort of geogra- the knowledge of the geography uh, of the territory allowed them to, to have incredible wins mm-hmm. and they could outlast them. They could make use of the diseases you yes. know, uh, that the British didn't have immunity to. So. The, Brit- the colonial office was not interested in taking over, but it was actually the internal diplomatic intrigue within the colonial, uh, the, w- within the, the people who were there. So the Sinhalese aristocracy, the Tamil uh, ruling class in that central uh, region, which is, I think, one of the untold aspects of colonial. It's oftentimes, when we talk about divide and rule colonialism, it's actually looking at the internal dimensions uh, of the quote-unquote native populations mm. that have kind of played a significant role in, in, in the politics. And in the case of Sri Lanka, uh, you know, it was really the kind of diplomatic intervention of a guy named Heopola, uh, crown prince uh, in the area, who uh, his family had this long kind of 
attempt to restore the Singhalese aristocracy in the in the middle and worked with the British and and it was almost like a responsibility to protect argument that came about but that's that's a whole other story that's that, that that's fair enough so we're so you've got this conflict you've got this divided territory in in the 19th century mm-hmm. uh, the British are after resources for tea other agricultural goods as well mm-hmm. and now we're we're you know we see the end of, of empire the post the post colonial mm-hmm. era post world war 2 right how does that legacy mm. of trying to extract resources out of sri lanka through that process how does that make an impact on the late 20th century mm. even 21st century politics of sri lanka is there a connection there yeah absolutely i mean what one of the things that it does is it creates a kind of uh, national economy based on extraction uh, that empowers certain families uh, because uh, local Sri Lankans were able to get into the to the coffee business and the tea business. Uh, so a lot of those families, the kind of well-to-do families, ended up becoming the political ruling class as well. And you end up with this kind of process through which the structure of the state, the colonial structure of the state that took root in the 19th century becomes a naturalized, normalized thing. So when I say like the, you know, in post-colonialism, we oftentimes might say, um, you know, look not just at how um, how the politics unfolds, but look at how the structures become normalized. So the structure of the nation state, for example, as a colonial satellite state, uh, that was a new intervention. You know, the way that the British uh, introduced the census, the way the British uh, consolidated and calcified caste identity and these other things, these were all things that were much more malleable before. Uh, and and then in and making them like a singular justice system rather than you know regional justice systems. These things all created the kind of uh, physical structure for problems uh, and the center of Buddhism and the center. It started moving to uh, Colombo uh, as opposed to in the center where it rested before. And by the time we end up in the post-colonial period, you end up with various different minority groups, principally the Tamils and the Singhalese, who, uh, for various historical reasons, uh, are not kind of like properly represented in their proportions in government jobs and whatnot, vying for influence. Uh, and, and it wasn't the case that they were vying against each other, you know? Mm-hmm. They were uh, quite united in their push for um, independence. But then the problem started when, when they sort of achieved it. Uh, and then one of the first acts of the free uh, Sri La- or Ceylon, it was still called Ceylon, government was to disenfranchise a significant portion of uh, the plantation workers. Take away the vote, take away the rights, That's take right. away everything that... They that no would, longer have citizenship. Citizenship is no longer extended. Right. Okay. And that happened. And then, you know, a million of them or so was sent off packing to India, a country that they probably had no knowledge of, rendered stateless, essentially, by this by this act. And then the push for nationalism and, and uh, trying to fill. So now we have the structure, this kind of soulless structure of the, of the colonial nation state. They need to create the soul to go into it. So uh, yeah. the establishment of post-colonial nationalism, you know, like... There was a strong push through the 20s in Sri Lanka, as there was in India, uh, to, to create a national culture. But these things are very um, imagined, you know, as Benedict Anderson would describe. <clears throat> so this is the point, right? We've, you've, we've just had a conversation about what uh, the history of Sri Lanka has been, <coughs> excuse me, in both a colonial and a post-colonial setting. 
And what, what I think you've come out with here is to show that the creation of governance and power structures mm. wasn't just a natural no. process. It was by design, either by accident or intention or circumstance, that that process is still lingering. So when we, when we see this sort of approach to post-colonial history or mm. uh, through that post-colonial lens, are we talking about understanding social and historical constructions of knowledge? Yeah, knowledge, and, and I think what we see is that it has material consequences, right? So this the, the, the presumed difference between knowledge and this quote-unquote real world is uh, is really false, I think. That's what postcolonialism would lead us to conclude. And, uh, you know, to, to build on what you were saying earlier, one of the ways that I try to explain this in my writing uh, on the coloniality of the state in particular is if we think about the sort of normal progression of... Uh, human spatial thinking, so the way we think about space and place. You can think of that um, as akin to the way that a river will naturally kind of like go its own way and it, and it creates a groove and these grooves and tributaries can eventually carve out uh, really significant canyons. But if at some point in history there was a dam that was erected that redirected the way that uh, water flows at the, at the time scale of a human being, you know, for a person born in the 1950s, who's been living under colonial, direct and indirect colonial rule for 400 years, they can't imagine the state any other way anymore. They forget what, you know, Yassine Bey says, what I forgot is better than whatever they remember. Right. And, and you have this situation where, you know, the Grand Canyon could have been established over a period of time like this. And people need to do the work of resuscitating what they used to know in order to find ways not to look backwards, but to see how their traditional knowledge or their what some scholars call the uncolonized hinterlands of their knowledge can be mobilized and put to use to uh, take the place that it ought to have play, uh, taken had you know Europeans and the rest of the world met each other as equals as they perhaps should have. Right. So in, in that case, you know, is the project then about trying to get the river flowing back on the path that it should have? Is that even possible, or are there other goals that come from this, mm. this way of thinking? I think there's other goals. and In some of the work that I've been doing of late, I've tried to think through theoretically what would be the consequences of smashing that dam. Right. And if you've got a dam that's been directing water for hundreds of years, and you break that dam, before the water returns to its own kind of equilibrium, you're going to wash away some villages. People are going to, there's going to be some, some consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, certainly what I've been arguing in my work and trying to think about, you know, territory in a complex way, so thinking of Canada less as a country and Canada more as a kind of uh, empire ruling over various sovereign nations, you know, when the f- decolonial floodgates are opened, uh, there's going to be harm, there's going to be some damage. But what I always like to tell people is that we can't limit what we're willing to do by sort of refusing to accept kind of the hard consequences. Because I tell you, and every every person will tell you the same thing, 400 years of colonization came with a lot of violence, apocalyptic mm-hmm. violence. Mm-hmm. So I think it's absurd that anybody could seriously think that we could decolonize uh, without enduring some significant hardships. And, and the way that this takes form, say, in the territories that we live now, right. you know, we're not talking about you know, people losing their lives and stuff, but we might be talking about people losing some of their jobs. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, when indigenous nations, grassroots activists, 
stand up and say we don't want pipelines in our territory, like what's been happening with the Wet'suwet'en in northern British Columbia, what's happening here outside Chibuktuk in with the Semenaganig um, site, the Stop Alton Gas protest. What is oftentimes being said is that Canadian jobs are being held at, at stake by these indigenous nations that are claiming sovereignty. But yes, you know, I mean, there's no defense necessary for that. I mean, the fact is you can either accept sovereignty or you don't, but there's nothing really in between. So it might mean that we have to rethink our economy. And for development studies, this is like a major thing, right? But this is also something that Western countries have thrusted on formerly colonized countries every step of the way. You know, it's been nothing for us to say, we're going to structurally adjust your country and your economy. You're going to stop doing this and you're going to start doing this. But the minute we apply developmental thinking to the Western countries, Canada, United States, heaven forbid we have to do some structural readjustments. Right, you know? right. So any sort of time that... that society or community for that matter is is asked to embrace change if it's going to be uh, contentious or if it's going to be supportive mm-hmm. in any way um, there 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 seems to be a need to challenge the base assumptions right of how we're currently organized right so in many cases if it is a Canadian context or if it is mm-hmm. in South Asia or if it's if it's in West Africa we've had another podcast that's dealt with Nigeria to, mm-hmm. to a degree, there's a base assumption about that people imagine where they are mm-hmm. and who they are. Right. Uh, I think you've had some exercises in the, in the class that we do during the semester mm-hmm. that brings us out about where do we basically start the conversation right. to get people to think about some of the base assumptions that they might even hold very dear. Very true. So one of the things that we do in the, the in-person class is, is we just try to answer a very simple question, which is, where are you and how do you know? And it's the second part of that. Most people have some kind of an answer for where they are. But when you ask them, how do you know that? That's when people uh, start to get a little panicked. And, and, and the conclusion there, you know, we hear a lot in Canada, in particular, other settler colonies as well, uh, territorial land acknowledgements. People are aware to some extent that we are treaty people, that these lands are governed by some sort of treaty. Not all the lands are governed by treaty. But it's oftentimes juxtaposed as a binary opposition. This is either Halifax or it's Chibuktuk. It can't be both. But my proposition is that, of course, it is both. And, and it became both not through just means, uh, but it is the inheritance of all who call these lands home to work through these complications because we are not limited by sort of what seven generations behind us did, but we are beholden to seven generations in front of us uh, to, 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 to act in a way that, um, that, that can help us work through this. Um, so it's not a question of, you know, are you on Turtle Island or are you on Canada? You're on both, and that contradiction is our inheritance, if you get what I mean. I do, and this is so <coughs> very much in the Canadian context. Mm. Um, you know, but you've been, uh, we talk about Sri Lanka, we're using the term right. Ceylon and Sri Lanka interchangeably. Yeah. Um, this isn't just a comfortable no. turn of phrase. There, there's, there's political merit behind the use of both terms, is it not? And, and the history of territory, the contested history of territory, that's what motivated me throughout my whole uh, PhD studies, actually. I started wanting to write a kind of like 
global study of what happens when the logic of the state falls apart for looking at these colonial pieces. And, and what I found was that, oh my goodness, this is the state, the logic of the state falls apart all over the place. Not just the, you know, like whether we're talking like Kashmir, the Kashmiri incident has produced yet another war that we're currently in between India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. Pashtunistan, uh, Baluchistan, like that's just in that kind of northwestern region. Um, and, you know, you go all over the world, the uh, you know, problem with Bosnia, like there's the logic of the state. And, and this is the really important thing. Um, when we think about something like the state, we assume the state has always been around. You know, like well, countries, you know, like countries about Rome, whatever, like it's been around forever. That's not really true. The way that countries as currently constituted with a seat at the United Nations and, you know, international diplomacy, this is a modern colonial construction. We didn't think about space and place in exactly the same ways. Uh, and because of that, it means that there, we might have to start thinking that it has a shelf life. And if it has a shelf life, then it opens up a whole slew of different options, ways for us to address critical things that also share a similar time span and, and, and life, life shelf so, or shelf life. And I hear I'm thinking particularly about the, the problems of the Anthropocene, you know, and development studies is, and post-development studies is trying to grapple with this crisis of the Anthropocene uh, as our geographers, as our other, uh, other scholars. And, and, you know, we can't ignore the sort of coming together of, of uh, industrialization, colonial capitalism, the Anthropocene, uh, and all this amazing technological capacity, and then how it is just smacked ruin across so much of the world for so much of the majority of the world's people. You know, it's, it's, it's often, we always talk about how we're living at like the sort of end of history to borrow from the Cold War, but even just that things have never been better. But if you look at it in terms of quality of life, and if you look at it in terms of the disparity of, uh, of wealth in this world, to some extent, you know, you got to wonder, has it ever been worse? Yeah. I mean, in many cases, you're right. We've never seen these sort of inequities before in history. Life expectancy has never been wider. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wealth between the top person and the bottom person has never been greater in history. And, and these don't break on countries, right? <coughs> like we're seeing the third world in the first world and the first world in the third world. You know, and, and this is this gets back to the idea about where you are, where are you really. The, the more that people are in tune with a, a history and a social history that deconstructs power, where we see right. that we've been influenced by similar factors and we've behaved in different ways as a mm-hmm. result of it. It, it, it invites more conversations about better ethical approaches right. to, to change in the future. One of the things that, that I've argued to myself in another paper I've, I'm, I've written uh, is that geographical illiteracy is very important to doing mm. destructive habits. And the amount of ways that we see geographical literacy on a daily basis is astounding. Mm. Uh, how many times do you, can you just click on any, any news item that's going to come from uh, a place like you know, Kenya or Zambia or right. South Africa and how quickly Western media will start talking about this as Africa? Right, right, right. right. The country the, of the, Africa. The, there, there are 53 independent nation states in the continent of Africa and how flippantly uh, Western media tends to just associate the complexity of that human and physical geography into one unit mm-hmm. uh, it is echoed right up to the top echelons of the White House right now to the point where current president of the United States can't even 
you know, remember the difference between uh, Zambia and Namibia, so he just puts them together, calling them the country of, you know, uh, Nambia, I think is what he came up with. And that's when he's not calling them shitholes. Yeah, that's uh, that's another <laughs> great term that the uh, 45th president has put yeah. forward. So, in much of this way, you know, these assumptions are very much part of it. And we've talked about the nation state, but let's wrap it up uh-huh. with just seeing how post-colonial thinking, moving towards decolonial action, there's so many commodities around us that are dependent upon products, resources, and labor uh, mm-hmm. that are truly globally interconnected. You're sitting in front of me now drinking a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's A lot of people are having tea right now. It's a common occurrence. Uh, mid-afternoon is a good time to have tea. Mm-hmm. Is there a certain coloniality to tea that we should be made oh, aware oh, of? Absolutely. You know, like it's one of these exercises that probably most people in an economics class, in a development class... You'll do some sort of commodity tracing, and it's always a wonderful exercise. But when you add to that commodity tracing, and by commodity tracing, I mean, you know, if you look at a bag of chips, you can see, okay, well, the oil came from here, and the potatoes came from there. And, but when you look at uh, something like a cup of tea, what you end up with is a cultural product. It's, it's more than simply a commodity. And it's a cultural product that comes to us at the intersection of forces of colonial globalization, with hundreds of years of history. You know, the simple fact, I mean, I should, uh, um, uh, you know, if it, to the fact that people in India drink tea with milk and sugar in it, uh, you know, they never used to drink tea with milk and sugar. And if there was tea around, it would have come from China, and they sure as heck weren't putting uh, milk and sugar in their, you know, Chinese tea. Uh, but what you have, what you have when you look at and trace the coloniality of a cup of tea is you see how you know, the migrations from Africa, well, the, the slave migrations of Africa, when, when the Europeans came and enslaved Africans, took them to the Caribbean to slave on uh, sugar plantations. And then eventually, after, you know, uh, basically Africans freed themselves and the British caught up, uh, then they brought new kinds of economic servants that they called indentured servants. And then Indians came en masse to all these same sugar plantations and, and sugar became woven into the fabric uh, of, of all that we do. And then, you know, you put, like, everybody talks about chai, you know, like chai is a sweetened tea, milky substance. So you see in it uh, not just the sort of inputs uh, that connects the Caribbean and Africa and India all together in that. What you also see is the cultural representation of that cup of tea. It is significant that it, a cup of tea represents a moment of leisure, right? So while the colonial uh, plantation owners, while the colonial officials will sit and drink tea from their porcelain cups, take shade in, uh, from the hot sun that they said that they were, you know, biologically unfit. We haven't even talked about uh, the ridiculousness of racial science. We'll have to save that for another day. We can bring it back on the show again. Yeah. But, you know, what, all this to say, when we look at the coloniality of a cup of tea, we can understand the economic inputs, we can understand the geographic migrations, we can understand the colonial opulence of the way in which that cup of tea is enjoyed. And this is something that we did uh, with considerable fanfare, I would say, uh, during the class where you very, uh, during the in-person class, where you very uh, graciously played the role of a uh, colonial butler. Mm-hmm. I recall that. There was, a, <laughs> there was some reaction to that, that very scene. So, cup of tea, <laughs> ingredients and labor literally on a global scale, sugar from the Americas, mm. tea from China, dairy from, from local, from Europe, yeah. together in a cup, bringing mm-hmm. that in. This is an exercise we could do with 
all sorts of commodities. We Absolutely. could we could take the you know the story of the gin and tonic, the yeah. India Pale Ale, the mm-hmm. uh, right, the hot right. toddy. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking just the way that we even see it now in more modern context, the mm-hmm. the the coloniality of Coca Cola, of oh, how yeah. what was originally a medicine uh-huh. in the uh-huh. late 19th century uh, to basically be a tonic for headaches, specifically. Right. The kind of crushing headaches that you would get coming off of an opium uh, mm. hangover, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, original Coca-Cola had elements of cocaine in it for that reason to right. try to get rid of that crushing head pain. Uh, Pepsi was a tonic for for peptic ulcers. Okay. And now we're seeing how soft drinks, in their own way, have encroached a different mm. sort of American colonialism through right. commodity, literally on a global scale. So I think for, for the listeners here, I mean, where we could where we could kind of leave it would be to invite them to look around the environment yes. that they're in. Uh, what beverage are they drinking? Mm-hmm. Where's where are these ingredients? Where's this history? Where's this culture of that beverage? The computer that they may be listening to, the ingredients mm-hmm. that go into producing an iPhone, mm-hmm. uh, the minerals, the labor, the technology, all coming together isn't just something to be assumed right. as a natural process. Mm-hmm. There's social and historical constructions behind all of this. Absolutely. There is absolutely nothing in the social world that is natural. So this is why I see that you keep yourself rather busy uh, during the days uh, thinking in the way that uh, that uh, is important for research and important for scholarship. So Professor Parsram, thank you for joining us on GDP. Thanks so much for the invitation. Good luck. Good luck.